Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Bernabee Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 123rd episode of the Nauticast titled Winter Falls, an analysis of a Clash of Kings brand six in which Theon Greyjoy takes Winterfell. Wow, he must have had hundreds, thousands of dudes, right? Wait, he only had 40? No, 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 that's pretty f- impressive. Or it's dumb. It's Theon Greyjoy. It's both. It's both very impressive and very, very dumb. Somehow both at the same time. That's the Theon Greyjoy conundrum for you. And we're very happy to welcome on to the Nauticast a new guest for this episode. We've been looking forward to having him on. Please welcome Stanford Fraser to the Nauticast. Thanks for coming on with us, buddy. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to go and speak to the Nod of listeners. <laughs> right? <laughs> the Nod and audience, and not a watcher. as they're known. <laughs> Or the not a the not a watchers, <laughs> yeah, and you know early spoiler warning, but I'm excited to take a deep dive into the future God Emperor of Dune. I mean, God Emperor of Westeros. <laughs> so let's let's do it. Can't wait. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. We were looking forward to have you on for a long time now, and it's going to be a it's a you, you chose a a very plot heavy, very consequential chapter to to jump on the Nauticast on. So we appreciate you taking the brave step forward and joining us. For this episode, because this episode is crazy. This chapter is crazy too, isn't it? So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not A Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooters of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark M, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Night Wolf, the, the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the Valyrian Steel's Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones, Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archbaser June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer Prince of Dragonstone, Scarlet the Other Woman is Scarlet the Other the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, Ward of the West, Herald of the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gem that was promised, the High Bearded Priest. Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Lyria, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Gracious High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, War of the Beast and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelicum, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons, the artist <laughs> formerly known as Sir K.W. Dent, L.C. the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, who is now being known as Low Energy Dent. Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Thades, and Gentle Dems. Lord Quint, Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for Several Unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further this secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldiver, the Waiter for Tiwa, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai. Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town. Veneris of House Kogarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mrs. Fart, the Overwork, Queen of Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee, the Great Game of Thrones, Push the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians. Sir Josh Snow, Bastard, Bounty Hunter of the North. Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes. Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, the Dead Shipper Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows. Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked, Still in the Jade Sea. Grave, Rob Stark, the Cadaver King and Horror of Harrenhal. Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the... 
Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick. Lucidities, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dayton and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lord Jean the Splendid, Master of Coin, Warden of Tampa Bay. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway. Lord Charles Tyrell, High... Oh. Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Warrior of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Squid Pro Quo, and Master of Zorse. Thank you to all of our small counselors very much. Thank you to our counselors as always. And our spoiler wing, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devils, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, who asks, I don't want to add to the incredibly hard work on the Forsaken, but one thing I'd be interested in hearing in the final part is how the other characters will react to Euron Greyjoy and how they find out about his looming threat. Will Bloodraven tell Bran that Euron means to take control of the others? Will Melisandre begin to see Euron looking back at her from the flames? Will she tell Jon and others of his ambitions? Will Makuro and Marwyn cancel Danny on the need to stop Euron? And I don't want to give away too much from our, our uh, continuing five-part <laughs> series on the Forsaken for our patrons. And specifically in regards to, to Bloodraven and Bran, I'm definitely going to have uh, plenty to say when we get to that final part. But I'm curious as to what you, you folks think about uh, the Red Priest's angle in in, uh, in Travis's question there. Because both Mercuro and Melisandre have seen visions that could be said to be about Euron in A Dance with Dragons. And so do you think that they're going to involve their respective messiah figures in this kind of the plot. Is Melisandre going to tell John about Euron? Is, is Mercuro going to tell Danny about Euron? What do you think about that? I think, yes, on some level, that Mercuro has seen the vision of Euron in the in the flames and seeing the the tentacles reaching out and uh, apparently controlling Victarion. And Victarion's like, well, I'm making make me dance. I, I don't dance. I mean, that's Victarion's response to that. So Mercuro's just like, God, this guy's so fucking dumb. Like, <laughs> It's a metaphor. <laughs> the, yes. the dragon can't get this guy soon enough. You know, I mean, it's it's just like, uh, it, it, it's hilarious. But I think that Mercuro will find a more willing and amenable audience in the form of Daenerys because Daenerys is intelligent, smart, and also able to deal with things that are complex, such as a metaphor, which is not super complex as the way that McCurl is working out with Victorian. So I, I think we will see that from Danny and uh, in terms of what Euron is doing. But my question is whether whether it's actually going to be a Danny versus Euron showdown. I know I think if Euron gets a dragon at some level, I think there will be. But if the he doesn't. Is this going to be something that's going to be taken care of by your favorite Tyrell brothers? That's true. I do. I do love Willis and Garland, and that's something that again we'll get to in the, in the end part of our Forsaken episode. But I'm, I'm wondering because you know obviously Danny and Euron are far apart geographically, and there's plenty both of those characters have to do. But I'm curious, Stanford. Do you do you do you think Danny and Euron might have? Uh, a romantic connection or like a potential like a, an attempt at a romantic connection because I'm thinking about the kind of guys Danny likes I'm thinking about Drogo I'm thinking about <laughs> Dario it's like they're not that they're not that far off from Euron do you think something might happen there you know I've actually never considered if that, if that was going to happen when I when I saw the question I thought well I know for a fact Melisandre's going to see Euron but misinterpret it so I know exactly. that, 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 that is destined <laughs> that, that must be something in a completely different direction yes, I Melisandre am very correct <laughs> yep that's destined to happen I I kind of thought that Euron was probably going to be more more Bran's antagonist, and maybe Danny doesn't sure. have that many interactions mm-hmm. with him. That makes sense to me. I mean, again, this is something we will get into more detail about, but um, there's almost kind of like a Star Wars angle, I think, to like to Bran, Blood Raven, and Euron, and that you know, when I left you, I was but this learner, and now I'm the master. That's kind of Euron's kind of angle, and he's you know the the, the dark twisted version of, of who Bran could be. 
So yeah, no, I, I I agree with that. I think I feel like George is teasing in that direction with Danny because you do have like Dario, you know, his his cell sort of name the Storm Crows, and you know, Euron is the Crow's Eye, and he says he's the Storm. So there's there's some links there. I've always felt that probably Danny's Danny's going to refuse Euron if that does come up because I don't think she's really got room in her plot to to literally link up with him. But yeah, I think I think I I, I agree with you, Stanford, that I think he's going to be on the the periphery of a bunch of different plots, but the the character I think who will most the pov at least who will most centrally have to take him down as bran now i think sam is going to be our pov on a lot of stuff euron does Mm because sam is the pov in the area but i don't think sam himself is going to be the one who takes down euron i think he's just going to be around while that stuff happens now here's something to consider i think that bran makes the perfect amount of sense to be the point of view where you would have some sort of confrontation between euron and bran perhaps not in person perhaps something on the astral plane which is something we've talked about in the past but bran works as like the perfect uh, opposite to Euron Greyjoy because he's the only person that was chosen to be Blood Raven's apprentice when Euron was rejected. So for once in the entire existence of Euron Greyjoy, he finally has someone that was actually better at him than something. Because Euron, by and large, is better than all of his brothers at everything as he tries to say over and over again to Aaron Dampere and to Victarion, which is I guess obviously true, but I, but I, you know, <laughs> sure. Whoops, sorry, sorry, Vic. I mean, I, I like you, man. I mean, people, you know, but <laughs> obviously, Euron is, is much smarter than Victorian, and obviously has a has a better grasp of how to manipulate people uh, using these kind of interesting religious themes than than Aaron Dampere is, and of course, the old way too, and manipulating the the way to do that. But Bran represents something that is much different in that he has been able, he has been chosen by Blood Raven, and he passed Blood Raven's initial initial test. In the third chapter in the Game of Thrones, their third, third brand chapter in the Game of Thrones, in which he uh, blow, he was able to fly instead of die. So, yeah, I, I think that's that's uh, that makes perfect sense to have Bran and Euron be the ultimate antagonist to one another, and of course, Bran to triumph over uh, over uh, Euron, which would be uh, awesome. Can't wait for that. Yeah, you make a great point. Something I've said about Euron before is that he he really doesn't have a chip on his shoulder compared to someone like Joffrey or Ramsay, who are clearly motivated by like, no, no, dad didn't love me, and no one doesn't right, no one respects me. Euron doesn't seem to care very much, but I think uh, you're totally right that the one kind of way in in that regard would be Bran kind of succeeding where he has failed and, and, and forcing him to deal with that. You know, Bran, Bran being a kind of, you know, much, much more earnest little fantasy protagonist guy. So I think that that, that totally makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Lord Travis, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Notacast podcast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over on patreon.com slash Notacast A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, bonus posts, and bonus episodes like our analysis of the chapter 12 of Fever Dream, the wonderful vampire novel by George R. R. Martin, which is out for all poor fellow and above patrons over at patreon.com slash Notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. And just to let you folks know, we'll be taking next week off because it is a family vacation for me. So there will be no live cast next week. Well, we're all sad, but not to fear. For those of you who have never heard it, we'll be releasing the second coming part one, the first of our five part analysis on the Winds of Winter, the Forsaken as a Patreon sample for everyone, for the people. So if you like what you hear, please consider joining our Patreon. And if we, we, we talked about this last week, but to reemphasize, if we achieve our next Patreon goal of either 1,250 patrons, again, a very specific number, or $7,500 a month, we will start an intensive series on the Hedge Knight for all of our patrons and mia culpa emmett last week i forgot to mention probably the most impressive thing that will happen if we reach that stretch goal and that is that emmett will record and release the first chapter from his forthcoming novel too deep 
So again, if you like what you hear, check out our Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Brandon Stark, Jojen Reed had prophesied that the sea was coming to Winterfell. Weird, huh? Let's find out what that ambiguous prophecy meant in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Bran 6. The sound was the faintest of clinks, a scraping of steel over stone. He lifted his head from his paws, listened, sniffing at the night. The rain has fallen, and summer, Bran, could smell a hundred smells ripening the ground. There were berry smells, grass smells. Summer, Bran, could smell Shaggy Dog, Rickon, and squirrels too. He could hear the squirrels clamoring around the trees and the strange noises that that sounded like. And then Summer, Bran, hears that sound again. He rises to his haunches and howls into the night, but the piles of quote-unquote man rock don't stir. The night was still, and Summer, Bran, knew that the wind that men were sticking nearby fires tonight to keep warm. Shaggy Dog comes up as quiet as Ghost had been back in the day, his fur bristling. He had heard the sounds as well and knew they and known they meant danger. This time, the clink and scrape were followed by a slithering and the soft, swift patter of skin feet on stone. The wind brought the faintest whiff of a man's smell he did not know. Stranger, danger, death. Shaggy, Rickon, and Summer Brant race toward the sound and Winterfell rises up before them. Summer bares his teeth towards the castle, but the stone was dead and uncaring. He sees the gates and throws himself at it, but the gate holds. He could only force his muzzles between the bars, but he and Shaggy both know that the gate wouldn't budge, and they couldn't dig through the gate either. There was more rock underneath. Still, Summer throws himself up against the gate, but it only moves slightly. Summer knows somehow that the gate is locked. They cannot get out, and the way is shut. There is, the whisper came, and it seemed as if he could see the shadow of a great tree covered in needles slanting up out of the black earth to ten times the height of a man. Yet when he looked about, it was not there. The other side of the gods were the sentinel. Hurry, hurry. Through the gloom of night came a muffled shout, cut short. Swiftly, swiftly he whirled and bounded back into the trees, wet leaves rustling beneath his paws, branches whipping at him as he rushed past. He could hear his brother following close. They plunged under the heart tree and around the cold pool, through blackberry bushes under a tangle of oaks and ash and hawthorn scrub to the far side of the wood. And there it was, the shadow he'd glimpsed without seeing, the slanting tree pointing at the rooftops. Sentinel came the thought. Summer, Brant, remembers how to climb and thinks about the needles on the tree that would scratch at his face, the sap that would stick to his paws, hands, now how the branches were close together and created a natural ladder. Summer growls and pisses on the tree to mark the spot to climb up. He tries then to grab a branch, but it cracks and breaks off while Shaggy sits and howls with mourning. Summer, Brant, realizes that there is no way up the tree. They weren't squirrels. They were wolves and not made for this climbing shit. But then the dogs start to bark into a great clamor, trying desperately to warn everyone of foes and fear coming. They're really good dogs, these dogs at Winterfell. Rage fills Summer and he springs forward and up, churning wet leaves and pine needles into the air. He feels like a hunter. Summer smells fear and is driven forward by it. Upward, he bounded up. Two bounds, three, hardly slowing until he was among the lower limbs. Branches tangled his feet and whipped at his eyes. Gray-green needles scattered as he shouldered through them, snapping. He had to slow. Something snagged at his foot and he wrenched it free, snarling. The trunk narrowed under him, the slope steeper, almost straight up and wet. The bark tore like skin when he tried to claw at it. He was a third of the way up, halfway more. The roof was almost within reach. And then he put down a foot and felt it slip off the curve of wet wood. And suddenly he was sliding, stumbling. 
He yowled in fear and fury, falling, falling, and twisted around while the ground rushed up to break him. And then Bran was back at bed in his lonely tower room, tangled in his blankets and his breath coming hard. Summer, he cried aloud, summer! His shoulders seemed to ache as if he had fallen on it, but he knew it was only the ghost of what the wolf was feeling. Chojin told it true. I am a beastling. Bran hears dogs barking and knows now that the sea has come and is flowing over the walls just as Jojen foretold. Bran tries shouting for help, but no one comes, and no one would come. Roger Cassell had taken every spare man and boy for battle against Dagmar Clefjall, who was attacking Torrin Square. So Winterfell, so Winterfell only had a token garrison. Bran pulls himself up on his bed, swinging from his bed to his window. After opening the window, Bran hollers for Hodor in the stables. Then he yells for Osha, Mira, Jojen. But then the door crashes open and the man who comes in isn't someone that Bran knows. Bran demands to know who he is and what he wants. He then orders him to get the fuck out of his room. Theon Greyjoy followed him into the bedchamber. We're not here to harm you, Bran. Theon? Bran felt dizzy with with relief. Did Rob send you? Is he here now? Rob's far away. He can't help you now. Help me? Bran was confused. Don't, don't don't scare me, Theon. I'm Prince Theon now. We're both princes, Bran. Ha! Who would have dreamed it? But I've taken your castle, my prince. Bran's like, uh, no, you didn't. And no, you didn't, Theon. The only thing you've ever taken is shit from everyone who's ever known you. Okay, he doesn't exactly say that, but point remains. Theon orders his man and some ironborn bro with the name of Orlig, bet that guy had a fun elementary school experience, to get out of the room. And then Theon seats himself on the bed and brags about how he took the castle with four bros who climbed the boat, who then opened the gate for the rest of the ironborn. Are you impressed about how fucking awesome I am, eight-year-old boy? You should be. Bran did not understand. But your father's ward. And now you and your brothers are my wards. As soon as the fighting's done, my men will be bringing the rest of your people together in the Great Hall. You and I are going to speak to them. You'll tell them how we you've yielded Winterfell to be and command them to serve and obey their new lord as they did the old. I won't, Bran said. We'll fight you and throw you out. I never yielded and you can't make me say that I did. Theon decides that the time for debate with this eight-year-old is now over. He won't be taking any shit from said eight-year-old. Bran better do what Theon says. Theon then leaves, probably thinking about he totally owned this eight-year-old lib, wondering whether Bran will need ointment for the burn he just inflicted on him. Back in Bran's chambers, though, Bran feels helpless while he waits. He hears shouting and maybe a clash of swords. Is that meta, George? But he doesn't have Summer's ears or nose. He's broken when he's awake, alive in Summer when he sleeps. Bran expects Hodor will come to get him, but instead it's Maester Lewin who turns up. The good maester asks him if he knows what happened, and Bran does. Lewin reports that the Ironborn swam the moat and came up over the walls. They killed Alebelly on the turret above the gate. Head Hayhead is also wounded. Lewin was able to send off two ravens away from Winterfell, but only the one intended for Wyman fucking Mannerly made it off. The other, unfortunately, was shot down. The maester stared at the rushes. Sir Roderick took too many of our men. But I'm as much to blame as he is. I never saw this danger. I, I, I never. Jojen saw it, Brant thought. You better help me dress. Lewin, buddy, love you, man. But this is exactly what Jojen warned you about, if I'm not mistaken. If I remember, like, the past three chapters that I've had Jojen reading it. Anyways, he did it in an albeit cryptic Jojen way, so I give you a little bit of credit there. Lewin declares that Bran must look princely and like Rob's heir, and together they get Bran into princely garments. Bran says that Theon wants him to yield the castle, and Lewin says there's no shame in that. A lord must protect his small folk. Yeah. But Lewin wrings his hands over Theon, thinking that Ned tried with Theon, but it was too little, too late. 
A squat, annoyed, ironborn brogue then comes to grab Bran, and he carries Bran to the High Hall. As they move through the castle, they find a cranky Rickon who demands to see his mom. <laughs> yeah, this really sucks bad. Lewin says that Catelyn is far away, but Lewin is here, so is Bran. So is Bran. Lewin takes Rickon by the hand, and they keep on. Farther on, they find Mira and Jojen being forced from their room by an ironborn guy with a long spear. And then they find those damned Walters Frey who proceed to taunt Bran about his brother losing his kingdom. And now he's just a hostage. So are you, Jojen said, and me, and all of us. No one was talking to you, frog eater. The Ironborn lead them out of the courtyard with a torch, but the rain snuffs it out. Bran hears direwolves howling and he hopes that Summer isn't hurt. In the Great Hall of Winterfell, Bran finds Theon sitting in the high sea of the Starks, and I'm really unhappy at this story development. Theon is all decked out in ironborn garb with fucking squids and shit, and Rickon says that Theon is sitting in Rob's chair. Goddamn right it's Rob's chair. But Bran tells Rickon to be quiet. A few torches have been lit and a fire kindled in the Great Hearth, but most of the hall remained in darkness. There was no place to sit with the benches stacked against the walls, so the castle folk stood in small groups, not daring to speak. He saw old Nan, her toothless mouth opening and closing. Hayhead was carried in between two of the other guards, a blood-stained bandage wrapped around his bare chest. Poxy, twin, Poxy Tim wept inconsolably, and Beth Cassell cried with fear. Theon regards the reeds and phrase and thinks it's quite unfortunate they were here when he arrived for them, but it's quite fortunate for him. More people then show up to the Great Hall. Gage and Osha, Gage and Osha arrive. Micken comes in cursing. Farland was limping and trying to support Paula, whose dress had been ripped in half. She walks in agony, which, yeah, ugh. Septon Shale tries to help, but one of the Iron Men knocks him to the ground. I, I, I don't know, guys. I'm starting to think that Theon might be a bad guy. It's a crazy talk. I know. I know. The last man marched through the doors was the prisoner Reek, whose stench preceded him, ripe and pungent. Bran felt his stomach twist at the smell of him. We found this one locked in a tower cell, announced his escort, a beardless youth with ginger-colored hair and sodden clothing, doubtless one of those who'd swum the moat. He says what they call him Reek. Can't think why, Theon says, smiling. Do you always smell so bad, or did you just finish fucking a pig? Haven't fucked no one since they took me, my lord. Heek's my true name. I was in service to the bastard of Bolton till the Starks gave him an arrow in the back for a wedding gift. Theon found that amusing. Who'd he marry? The widow of Hornwood, my lord. That crone? Was he blind? She has teats like empty wineskins, dry and fucking withered. It wasn't her teats he wetter for, my lord. The doors are then shut, and Bran considers that there are only 20 ironborn in the hall. There were probably more outside, but the party couldn't have been larger than 30 in total, Bran judges. Theon starts bellowing about how everyone knows him, and Micken says, yeah, we know you're a gigantic piece of horseshit. He then gets the butt of the spear for that remark. Bran tells Micken to be quiet, but Bran can't summon his lord's voice. Theon tells Micken to listen to Bran. A good lord protects his people, Bran reminded himself. I have yielded Winterfell to Theon. Louder, Bran, and call me prince. Bran raised his voice. I have yielded Winterfell to Prince Theon. All of you should do as he commands you. Damned if I will, bellow Beckon. Theon ignored the outburst. My father has donned the ancient crown of salt and rock and declared himself king of the Iron Islands. He claims the north as well by right of conquest. You are all his subjects. Bugger that! Micken whipped the blood from his mouth. I serve the Starks, not some treasonous squaw! The butt of a spear smashed him face first to the stone. 
Theon mocks Bikun before, continuing on to say that he's going to be generous and awesome to the small folk, just like Ned. Meanwhile, Mikun spits blood while Bran prays that he doesn't speak. Mikun, though, doesn't listen, and he correctly accuses the Ironborn of being a sorry lot. The bald man drove the point of his spear into the back of Mikun's neck. Steel slid through flesh and came out of his throat in a welter of blood. A woman screamed and Mira wrapped her arms around Rickon. It's blood, he drowned on, Bran thought numbly. His own blood. Theon, who will be as generous a lord as Ned was, wonders if anyone has anything else to say, and Hodor starts hodoring. This leads to Theon, as generous a lord as Ned was, to order his men to shut Hodor up. So the Ironborn beat Hodor up with the butts of their spears as Hodor falls to the floor, trying to shield himself with his hands. I will be as good a lord to you as Eddard Stark was, Theon raised his voice to be heard above the smack of wood on flesh. Betray me, though, and you'll wish you hadn't. And don't think the men you see here are the whole of my power. Torrent Square and Deepwood Mott will soon be ours as well, and my uncle is sailing up the salt spear to seize boat Kaelin. If Rob Stark can stave off the Lannisters, he may reign as king of the Trident hereafter, but House Greyjoy holds the north for now. Reek, Reek says the North will fight the Ironborn, the Manderleys, Umbers, and Karstarks will fight to eject Theon from, from Winterfell. So how about Theon freeze Reek, Reek, right? Huh? He'll so totally serve Theon faithfully, he says, while probably fantasizing about the skinning knife that he's going to apply to Theon Greyjoy. Theon thinks this clever, but he's not about to take some guy who smells bad into his service. He has standards? No, he doesn't. Reek says he'll bathe, and Theon smiles and orders him to bend the knee. One of the Iron Men handed Reek a sword, and he laid it at Theon's feet and swore obedience to House Greyjoy and King Balon. Bran could not look. The green dream was coming true. But Lord Greyjoy, Osha stepped past Micken's body. I was brought here captive too. You were there the day I was taken. I thought you were a friend, Bran thought, hurt. Theon, as generous and as good a lord as Ned Stark ever was, says he doesn't need sluts in his service. Osha responds that she was only in the kitchens because Rob put her there. She was a fighter before all that. She wants a spear in her hand yet again. The bald man who murdered Micken grabs his stick and says he has a spear for Osha, and Osha knees his crotch, steals his stick, and tells him, uh-uh, no thanks. Everyone laughs, and Theon welcomes Osha into his service so long as she bends the knee. When no one else rushed forward to pledge service, they were dismissed with a warning to do their work and make no trouble. Hodor was given the task of bearing Bran back to his bed. His face was all ugly from the beating, his nose swollen and one eye closed. Hodor... He sobbed between cracked lips as he lifted Brandon's huge, strong arms and bloody hands and carried him back out into the rain. And that is the miserable end of the gut-wrenching chapter that is A Clash of Kings, Brand 6. Everything, uh, yeah, everything about this feels totally fucking unfair and it hurts to reach the chapter that signals the death knell of the Stark cause. The cause that... Despite me liking Stannis, the one that I believe is the only justified cause of the War of the Five Kings. What did you gentlemen think of this chapter? So we've been loving the beautiful slow burn of these brand chapters in the Clash of Kings, as his coming of age dovetails with the rising magical and political tides in Westeros. But now the slow burn is over, for the plot has suddenly arrived. And as I've said before about the Northern storyline in a Clash of Kings, there are a couple of creaky elements to that plot still. This is a gripping, suspenseful chapter, and on reread, it becomes clear that George is not bulldozing the intricate groundwork he laid in those earlier brand chapters. Instead, the earlier themes and conflicts are in this chapter put to the test, and the sudden pressure cooker of Theon Greyjoy, of all people, 
taking Winterfell. <laughs> but I want to hear what our guests thought. What, what stood out to you uh, this time through, Stanford? You know, I, I really love this chapter, even though it's a pretty sad chapter. I felt like it was more sad reading it, even though I know what happens uh, eventually. I think some moments that really stuck out to me was when Bran woke up from his wolf dream, he was... He was actually very scared. He felt alone. This random person comes into his room, but then he sees Theon. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Theon's here. And there's like a moment where he feels relieved and I'm reading it. I have the narrator voice. He shouldn't have felt relieved. And then Theon explains to him what happens. And you can just see how broke, how broken this makes Bran feel, how crushed he is in this moment. And I think it was a really good way of George demonstrating Theon's betrayal through the eyes of, of a boy. I think another thing that actually stood out was green of Jojen's green side abilities being confirmed as something that was real, but that these that this prophecy or this prediction came came about in a more poetic than literal way, which is going to be good for Bran's future, knowing what Jojen saw. But I think it's also something to keep in mind for the reader as we go through other prophecies and magical visions throughout this story. It's almost a short story of the monkey's paw, you know that. Your dreams are going to come true. Those those wishes are going to come true, but maybe not in the exact way that you thought it would. Right. I think it's a great dynamic that George explores. And he, he does that several times with prophecy. And he's specifically talked about utilizing prophecy in an ambiguous way and having people meditate on it and come to the wrong conclusions, as Melis Hunter does for practically fucking everything. Uh, and in that kind of light, I was thinking about this idea of prophecy and magic and how it exists in A Song of Ice and Fire. And as much as like a lot of the latter part of this chapter is where the, the plot meet is and what people remember, I find the early parts especially intriguing. I mean, we've had flashes of Bran living through Summer's eyes, but the chapter open was the longest scene yet we've had of warwicking, which is the process of man and wolf kind of meeting in the middle and man kind of living in the, uh, the mind of a wolf for a little while. It's something we're going to revisit in the final Bran and Clash of Kings chapter with Bran warwicking Summer in an even longer sequence. But I want to highlight it here because I'm fairly confident, wink wink, George's writing of Bran's direwolf scenes will be turned to 11 come the Winds Winter and Jon Snow's chapters. In Bran's Clash and his also future Storm and Dance chapters, George has created the architecture for how to depict the perspective of direwolves. But come the Winds Winter, I imagine we're going to be seeing entire chapters from the perspective of Ghost. And what we'll be getting is some sort of melding of John and Ghost's consciousness together, much as we see Bran and Summer's mind attempt to find understanding of the danger coming over the walls of Winterfell. The language, though, is scattershot, communicated mostly through emotion and instinct. But as Bran and John's working abilities grow, the the synthesis of man and wolf will also deepen. The challenge for John and Bran is uh, the one that is whether is the, the challenge for Bran and John in the Winds Winter will be to achieve this magical synthesis and avoid the way that Varamir's six skins became. Every day his memory fades and the beast becomes a little less a war, like a little more a wolf until nothing of the man is left and only the beast remains. I think you both make really good points about the issue of control with magic and about how much this is really under Bran's control and how much he needs to be aware of that this will, like a monkey's paw, just turn on him. And he's mm-hmm. he's, he's not fully aware of things, even though these are, strictly speaking, his powers. And he has to be a little more self-conscious, almost a little more genre-savvy about this, how that kind of thing works. When, when Sanford mentioned the monkey's paw, I thought about there's the one uh, Simpsons episode where Homer gets a monkey's paw and he's like unusually smart with it. He says, you know what? I want a turkey sandwich. And, and... I don't want these zombie turkeys. I don't want to turn into a turkey myself. I don't want any other weird surprises. Got it? Because in that moment, Homer knows he knows how those stories kind of work. And Bran is still young. He's still taking the stories at face value. He's not really thinking critically. 
about how these things line up with reality. And unfortunately, neither is Melisandre. You get a character like Mance Raider and his wife Dala who say, yeah, we have this magic power, but we don't want to use it because we know that like a monkey's paw, it's always going to be unexpected and always going to turn on us. So we really don't want to have to rely on this. Bran is going to have to develop his own distinct relationship to magic. But in the, in the kind of the bigger picture of the story, as we said last week, George perfectly structures this chunk of A Clash of Kings, cutting right from Catalan's nameless dread to a disaster that gives it form. The gods have given us victory after victory, so why am I so afraid, she thought. Why do I sense defeat? Well, here is the defeat that she sensed. The fall of the Stark Castle, the center of Rob's fledgling kingdom and her family homestead. The fall of Winterfell and everything that comes from it turns Rob's victories into ash, commencing the hollowing out of his kingdom. It continues to have major ramifications well into a storm of swords and a feast for crows and a dance with dragons. Within A Clash of Kings, I think it's notable that this chapter comes at exactly the same point in the book as Ned's downfall in the throne room in book one. In both cases, we have 23 chapters to go in the book, roughly a third of the book. This is the second act break, with dividing each book into three acts, and as such, it's where everything ramps up. From here, as in book one, after the throne room scene, things get climactic. Not only in Winterfell, but in King's Landing, with the Battle of Blackwater, the Riverlands, with the fall of Harrenhal to Roose Bolton, Beyond the Wall, with Corrin Halfhand and Jon's mission in the Frostfangs, and of course in Karth, with Danny's trip through the House of the Undying. So this is a big moment, one of the hinges of the story. Yet it begins on the smallest, humblest note imaginable. A quiet sound, barely perceptible in the night. George lets us know right away that we're not, strictly speaking, in Bran's head, we're in Summer's head, as he lifts that head from his paws. Paws. Okay, so we're in a wolf. And this is the most, and this is the most time we spend warging in the series so far. Mm -hmm. As such, even as George keeps our focus on learning what's happening in Winterfell, he is also educating us on how warging works, because all the info about what's happening in Winterfell is filtered to us through the warging process. So you could say our detective work as readers is doubled in this part of the chapter. Even as the tension rises, even as we realize something bad is happening, it's obscured by the wolf perspective. Sensory information is what overwhelms Bran inside Summer. The wolves have such powerful ears and noses compared to men, and Bran just soaks it all in. I think this is familiar to anyone who's ever owned a dog when you're walking them and they're, they're running around, sniffing around trees. You can tell they're just, they're just soaking in so much more information than you could even possibly conceive of. And that's what's happening to Bran here. Coming back on reread, I think you can, you can tease an arc out of these specific sensory details that Summer picks up on. There's kind of a, a metaphor for the overall story here. You, you have blackberries broken on the ground. And that made me think about how when, when Bran was thinking he was going to leave Winterfell in book one, he had to say to goodbye to everyone. He wanted to say specifically goodbye to someone who had given him a blackberry from the, from, the, from the greenhouse in Winterfell. So it represents his childhood innocence. And now those blackberries are lying broken on the ground. His wistful dreams of the night he could have been in King's Landing are broken on the ground. And then you have some mud, you have worms, you have rotting leaves. That's like the sedimentary layer of death that's taking hold in a Westeros at war. Everything's being reduced to mud. Everything is a feast for worms. And you have a rat, as Summer describes it, crawling through all of that. And that, of course, is Theon. The rat who's going to betray the Starks <laughs> and take over Winterfell in this chapter. Bran in Summer compares the sound he heard, that, that, that little clink of, of unfamiliar noise that started the chapter, he compares it to uh, the sound of squirrels climbing trees. Because what he is hearing is men climbing the walls of, quote, man rock. 
Bran previously compared Winterfell to a great stone tree, so this comparison makes sense. Those men are climbing, just like he used to climb. Bran in summer hears the noise again, and howls to try and wake the castle up. A howl to wake the sleepers, is how George puts it. And that connects this scene to the Night's Watch, who vow to be the horn that wakes the sleepers. And just like how the Night's Watch is being abandoned and ignored by the powers that be down in King's Landing, no one takes heed of Summer's warning in time. And that comparison is further bolstered when Bran in Summer compares Shaggy Dog to Ghost, to Jon's Wolf. It's as if these two storylines have briefly become one. The wolves hear the, as, as George puts it, the soft, swift patter of skin feet on stone. That's just beautiful alliteration on his part. And it reminds me of, of, uh, of Lord of the Rings, the way George described it when he says that the wolves don't mean stranger, danger, death. Like that's how they phrase it in the, in the Shire when the, when the ringwraiths show up. That, you know, they're, they're, they're blowing their horns and they're shouting, there's strangers, there's dangers, there's death. And there's the added re- resonance in the Song of Ice and Fire, of course, because we know that the stranger is quite literally the god of death. It's very interesting that the that wolf brand, right, or that the dire wolves, they can, they can sense the danger, right? You hear the metal clashing in our reread. You realize, oh, yes, that's definitely the iron. Like immediately you realize that's the ironborn coming to take Winterfell. But even the wolves, they don't necessarily know how to interpret the sound, but they know it's some type of danger. And they actually try to escape the godswood, but they're locked in. I think it was two or three branch chapters ago, I think Sir Roderick locked them in after one of them rightfully attacked the Walder phrase. <laughs> and it's and I can, you kind of compare that to a Game of Thrones where Summer comes and saves Bran and Catelyn from the cat's bar. And it's kind of, it kind of is a returning theme throughout the books that when the Starks lock up their wolves, almost locking up maybe their northern side, their, their smarter instincts, bad things happen, right? You have Grey Wind being a bit locked up before the Red Wedding. You have John locking up ghosts before he gets mutinied in, in Dance with Dragons. Uh, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a terrific comparison. It's these these animals who represent your instincts and your soul, and you got to lock them away to be like a, a, a rational person who doesn't believe in such things as wolves or dragons. But that magical side, that instinctive side, has some wisdom that's really important, and that Bran has to integrate them. And unfortunately, that's just that's not the case here. And Winterfell suffers for it. And so we have to interpret everything through the wolf's understanding. He describes his cage as being made of snakes and bones, whereas we, you know we would u- use words like you know walls and gates. Because as a wolf, he perceives everything as part of nature, not as man-made objects. It further enhances the sense of Winterfell as being like a tree, like a living being unto itself. But it's not just Summer hanging out in Summer's brain. Bran is in there too, and suddenly we hear a boy's voice whispering, Locked. Chained. That's the human understanding. And that's also the human condition, being locked within ourselves, locked within our brains and our perspective, unable to break outside it. Bran, however, is doing something that people in the real world generally speaking, can't do. He's breaking the metaphorical chains of which Jojen spoke. He is now a living presence inside his wolf, a scent without a smell, as Summer describes it, something beyond the physical world that his wolf knows so well. Bran's subconscious is not merely defining the world of man for his wolf. He begins to influence the wolf's actions, driving him to act more like a human. The wolf sees no way out of the cage, but the boy remembers... There's the sentinel tree he used to climb, like the squirrels, the wolves here. Summer hurries over to it as he hears shouts from outside the godswood. The tension is ramping up, and we as readers desperately want Summer to succeed and warn somebody. Yet amidst the suspense, there is also humor, producing the singular tone of this chapter where you have horror and, and, and tension, but also this kind of underlying note of humor, because there is something very funny about picturing a wolf trying to climb a tree. 
That's ridiculous. That's that's silly. As Stanford was saying in our little pre-episode, there's something very cartoonish, very Looney Tunes about that. The boy remembers how it was to climb, remembers how much he loved it, but his warging powers can't bring those days back. As a wolf, Summer's first instinct is to pee on the tree and marking it. Shaggy Dog mournfully reminds Summer that, no, wolves don't climb, that's not our thing. That's for men and squirrels. Remember, Ned compared Bran to a squirrel back in book one. Still, Summer tries. He retreats, and then he rushes forward as fast as he can, jumping up the trunk, running past branches, almost making it to the wall. And then he slips and falls. He falls like Bran before him. The combination of man and wolf has left Bran and Summer caught in between. A wolf's body trying to carry out the duties of man. This, this attempt to reconcile the two, which I think is really kind of the structure of Bran's whole story, right here it's just ended in pain. Right, and I think it's part of the training heart for Bran and his warging abilities in order to kind of learn more how to be, actually become a warg and how to access this power that he has, this intrinsic power he has as a Stark, and especially with uh, with Summer specifically. And because this is a Bran chapter, and George does this so well throughout all of Bran's chapters in A Clash of Kings, we have a balance. So we have certain Bran chapters which tend to focus on the magical elements. We have certain Bran chapters which tend to focus on the political elements. Here, George does this thing where he switches the storytelling device a third of the way through the chapter to have us move from the warging and from the magical side to the political side. And so I figure, like we did for the Rite of King's Landing, that and what we did also for Ned's downfall in A Game of Thrones, I figure it would be a good spot to track how densely George plotted the political stark, the stark political downfall in the North with precise timing and the small moments that then snowball into larger details. So, and what better way to track George's excellent setup and payoff than Ned Stark's downfall, the way I referenced before. So, of course, Ned gets portrayed in King's Landing, which causes his son to rob, rob to call the banners. He takes most of the men, fighting men south in hopes of scoring victories against the Lannisters and taking either Jamie or Tywin prisoner to exchange for Ned. They win against Jamie, taking him prisoner, but Ned is executed, leading to the Northern Lords to declare Rob king in the north. Now that Rob is king, he has to fight for the north and the Riverlands' independence from the Iron Throne, so he can't go back north yet, but he also needs allies like the Ironborn. So he sends Theon to the Iron Islands in hopes of scoring an alliance with Balon Greyjoy with predictable results. Catelyn told you, Rob, you should have known better. Meanwhile, in the north, we've got trouble in the Hornwood lands with the Manderlys and Boltons getting into a war footing over Lady Danella Hornwood and her hand in marriage. Danella comes to the Harvest Feast along with a bunch of other northern lords, but Lewin and Roderick can't figure out who she should marry, so they punt the issue to Rob Stark, who, again, is still fighting in the fucking Riverlands, and then they send her away with only the smallest of escorts. Lady Hornwood then gets ambushed on the road back to Castle Hornwood by Ramsay Snow, who forcibly marries her, and this leads to open war in the woods between the Manderlys and the Boltons. Roger Cassell rides from Winterfell to try to settle things with the war between the Boltons and the Manderlys, taking a lot of the Winterfell guard with him. What this means is that most of the North is involved in fighting each other rather than focused on any external threat which might be coming. Speaking of which, surprise! The Greyjoys are enormous pieces of shit who suck so hard, so, so hard, and they invade along the Stony Shore and the west coast of the North, as long as Victarion heading up to Moat Caelan. Theon hatches his scheme to have Dagmar Clefjall attack Torrin Square to draw Roderick Stark away from Winterfell, while he, as in Theon, moves towards Winterfell itself. So Roger Cassell wheels around to respond to this new threat, taking almost all of the remaining guard with him from Winterfell to repel Dagmar's attack on Torrin Square. And that's where we find ourselves here at the precipice of the fall of the Stark cause. All of the plot points that started in A Game of Thrones have cascaded to this moment of overall tragedy for the Starks and for Bran Stark in particular. 
And then all of a sudden, we're back with Bran in his bed. George is out to disorient the reader in order to get us into Bran's confused, frightened headspace. Yet, even as Bran jolts back into his body from that of his wolf, feeling an echo of Summer's pain, confused about what's happening and why, George is paying off multiple elements of his story at the same time. This is the moment in which Bran gives up the refusal of the call from the hero's journey. He fully and finally accepts that Jojen, his magical mentor, was telling the truth about everything all along. I am a beastling after all. Didn't I just have an extended wolf dream in which Summer's actions were driven by the knowledge and backstory of me inside him? That cannot be explained by anything but warging. In the same paragraph, George reminds us of Jojen's prophecies, delivered too late to save anyone, only helping Bran understand his fate when it's already too late. The sea has come, and knowing it didn't help. The wolves howl, the dogs howl, Bran howls, and the gods are silent, forsaking them one and all. Forsaken, ding! I mean, <laughs> I mean, back in the Game of Thrones, Bran spent most of his third chapter falling from a tower with death below and the three-eyed crow above him, challenging him to fly. And it was the moment where Bran was introduced to his magical side, the ability to open his third eye, which culminates in him becoming the last green seer Come the wind's winter next week. And here we have a similar moment where another fall forces Bran to acknowledge that he's not merely a green seer. Bran, as you were saying, finally admits that he's a warg and Jojen was right about his ability and everything else. Prior to this chapter, Bran was in denial about his ability, knowing that he was in summer in his dreams in some way, yet denying that it was anything more than a dream. And that's an interesting narrative current which George integrates into A Song of Ice and Fire, which has characters recognizing something intrinsic about themselves and their moments of dire wolf peril. Of course, Summer's tumble from the tree is less dangerous than Bran's near-death experience after Jamie pushed him from the Winterfell Tower. And so Bran's move here is to stop denying his ability, a rather less momentous act than flying from the death that reached up towards him in Bran's third chapter in The Game of Thrones. So too, George has this thing where people are realizing something integral to the plot or about themselves prior to a major twist in the narrative. I mean, think about, you know, in A Dance with Dragons when Tyrion reveals that he knows that young Griff's true identity as Aegon Aegon the Sixth Targaryen just before the Bridge of Dreams is sighted a second time. And here comes this twist, but it's not a magical twist. It's a much more ordinary, brutish twist. Yeah, that's a great point. It's, you know, you have these like shamanic characters like Bran who oftentimes have some kind of terrible injury to kind of cue them into their powers or make their powers possible. And that goes hand in hand with Bran as a kind of Fisher King archetype because the whole idea of the Fisher King is you you get a very telling wound in your thigh slash crotch area. You know, it means you can't <laughs> propagate, you can't get the land going, and suddenly the land falls into disrepair. And Bran is exactly this kind of character. But as always in A Clash of Kings, politics are at work, as well as magic. Two forces, two kinds of power, always intertwining and affecting one another. The reason no one is heeding Bran and Summer's warning is the same reason that no one, except Alebelly that is, heeded Jojen's warning. People place a higher premium on political power than magical power because it's visible, it's tangible. We, we, we treat them as opposites rather than bringing their insights together as one. In the political domain, Winterfell is all but empty of men to respond to Bran's call because Theon's ploy worked. Sir Roderick took all the men in the area to go fight Dagmar Cleftjaw at Torn Square. As soon as the reader learns that, we realize with horror that it is Winterfell that Theon meant to take back in Theon 3, and that's exactly what he's doing right now. 
George moves quickly through this section of the chapter, in part, I think, because he knows the plot beats that make this possible are somewhat suspect. It really doesn't make sense that Roderick all but abandoned the Stark home and the Stark heirs in the midst of what is now clearly an ironborn invasion. I mean, Roderick <laughs> knows where Dagmar comes from, right? Who he works for? Do lone wolf sea raiders typically lay siege to inland castles? I don't think so. But Roderick has to take everyone for the plot to work, because even a couple dozen extra men at Winterfell right now would stop Theon in his tracks. This is not due to unusual carelessness on the author's part, but rather just the difficulty of rewriting the Sack of Winterfell plot to fit Theon and Ramsay. Back in the initial story outline, Tyrion was the one to burn the Stark Castle. Presumably, he would have done so with a sizable Lannister army. As the story developed, however, George decided to stage Tyrion's rise and fall around his relationships with his family down in King's Landing, which I think was the right move, and also decided that the Boltons instead would be the primary heels in the north, the primary anti-Stark force in the north. So while George needs the Ironborn invasion to succeed just enough to get Bran on his way and influence Rob and Catelyn's decisions down in the Riverlands, he also needs the Ironborn to fail just enough so that the Boltons can easily take over and become the heels of the North. That is a difficult balance to strike. And so George wound up hinging it on what I think are some kind of flimsy and forced plot beats. Enough whining. I promise to never bring it up again. I made my point. This is still gripping, devastating stuff to read. And George makes up for, for some story weaknesses with great character work for both Bran and Theon. First, a stranger comes through the door in response to Bran's call. And he's frightened by that, as of course he would be. But then he's relieved when Theon walks through the door next. Because Theon is his foster brother. Theon is someone very familiar to Bran, someone from his old life before the fall. The reader, of course, is not relieved at all, because we've been in Theon's head in his own chapters. We know what's up. We're trying to just reach through the page and warn Bran that Theon is no longer on his side. And Theon's first words are so telling. We're not here to harm you, Bran. Smash cut to Theon hunting Bran through the woods and then claiming to have killed him. <laughs> Theon feigns diplomacy, but he can't get past the brutality of what he has come here to do. And we will see this in full later in the chapter and in Theon's own chapters later in this book. Bran, for the moment, thinks that Theon has been sent by Rob. That Rob might be here too. Oh, how heartbreaking is that? That's like the Civil War, the costs of the Civil War at its most intimate. Yeah, and the irony is that Rob did kind of send Theon in this direction with his order to have Theon bring his letter to Balin Greyjoy, proposing the alliance between the Starks and the Greyjoys. And this is a piece of the structure of tragedy I think that George does really, really well. The good intentions of Rob Stark have led to unmitigated disaster at the home front, a disaster which will essentially seal the doom of the Stark cause and Rob's cause particularly. The playwright Gustav Freitag, I hope I'm getting that, getting that name right, wrote about the tragedy, about the structure of tragedy in theater, in which he talked about the five phases of tragedy. Exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, and of course, catastrophe. For Rob, Catelyn, and the Stark cause, this is the climax of the tragedy. Or as Freitag puts it, the climax can be thought of as a reflection point. If things have gone well for the protagonist, at the climax, they start to fall apart tragically. 
As we talked about last week for Catelyn's sixth chapter in Clash, everything has gone really well for Rob and his subordinate can- commanders. They've won every battle, they've pants Tywin Laster, and a smooth-brained henchman at every turn. Tywin is pinned down in the Riverlands, retreating towards the Blackwater Brush, while the remainder of the Lannister host is in the west and scattered. And here in Winterfell, everything falls apart for our hero, Rob Stark. But in true tragic lens, it's fallen apart due to the actions of our would-be protagonist, Rob Stark. If Rob had listened to his mom like you should, you always gotta listen to your mom, and even with Balan Greyjoy planning to invade the North anyways, the Ironborn invasion would have not likely culminated with Theon Greyjoy taking Winterfell, because Theon wouldn't have actually been in the North, actually controlling a small amount of soldiers in, in the North and having knowledge of the land. Asha, Victorian, Aaron, and Dagmar, they don't know the North. They don't know the temperament and personality of Leobold Tallhart or how Roger Cassell would respond to the threat against Torrance Square. But Theon knew. He had been raised as Ned Stark's ward and had traveled with his lord throughout the North and gained the know-how of the inner workings of the North. And so, Rob inadvertently created the tragic climax to the Stark cause. Next to come is the slow-falling action followed only by the catastrophe of the Red Wedding. And again, this week, as in last week, I'm sad. And, yeah, and, and a small point that, you know, it probably doesn't make sense that Roderick took so many men with him going to going to, a, to protect Torrance Square, but it, but it reminds me a little bit of Ned in A Game of Thrones when he basically sends half of his own personal guard yep. to go after the mountain, mm-hmm. which was also not the, not the greatest decision. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. They're, they're definitely reacting like, oh, the thing I'm supposed to protect. Let's go, everybody. And it's, you know, I think it, it might be George, you know, taking the piss out of the, the automatic hero's instinct a little bit and forcing people to think things through on a political level. I think that's, that's definitely a good point. Bran still thinks of Theon as a protector in this moment, the man who saved his life in the woods outside Winterfell back in book one. And so Theon has to tell Bran that no, he comes now as a conqueror, as an enemy. Theon tells Bran that Rob can't help him now, and Bran is confused by this, naturally, because last he knew, Theon and Rob were friends. Theon's explanation is again so telling. It's Prince Theon now, Bran. Gotta respect my titles. (laughs) That's Theon's overweening ego and desperately thin skin coming to the fore. He's so brittle that he demands obeisance from a scared child. We're both princes, Bran. Who could have believed it? Ah, that's a little that's a little part of Theon's more like naive songs and stories heart coming out. You know, that's a flicker of nostalgia, of mutual wonder. Look, we're princes. But it crashes on the political realities. They're princes of different kingdoms. Theon dismisses the other Ironborn man and sits on Bran's bed, just like it's the old times. He tells Bran that he sent men over the walls to open a gate. Bran still can't quite wrap his head around the idea that Theon is now on a different side of the war, that this man he grew up with is now a dedicated foe as much as the Lannisters. Remember, Bran was born a little after the Iron, the, the Greyjoy Rebellion, Balin's First Rebellion, so he has never known a time that Theon didn't live at Winterfell. And so he says, your father's ward. But Ned is dead, and now Theon has struck out on his own. The old world, the old bonds of peacetime, fall apart in the war, and as Bran grows up, Theon tells Bran that he and Rickon are now his wards. I don't know how literally Theon means that. (laughs) I think he might just be reveling in the power inversion. The Starks are now in his control. I don't know if he's necessarily talking about literal wardship as the custom goes in Westeros. But by naming Bran and Rickon his wards, 
Theon is bringing them officially under his protection, making him all the more a pariah when he claims to have killed them. Theon demands Bran's culpability in this. You have to be complicit in your own conquest. He tells him to officially surrender Winterfell because Theon realizes that the people are going to follow Bran's lead, ultimately not his. Bran, spunky little fantasy protagonist that he is, insists that his people will fight and throw Theon out. Theon tells Bran not to play the boy. Well, that's a telling phrase because it's just the phrase that Ned and Rob and John used to, to get Bran to grow up. Don't play the boy. Again, a reminder that Theon is turning on what was his own home. That's a phrase he learned from the very people he's fighting now. Ironically, Theon is the one who continually plays the boy in Winterfell. He's immature, he's self-centered, he's pointlessly aggressive. Bran, despite being so much younger, is the one who sets his pride aside and does what is best for his people. As Theon says, those people are still Bran's responsibility, and Bran lives up to that. Yet Theon neglects his own responsibility as the new lord of Winterfell. And this naked threat to the lives of Winterfell's residents is another sign how poorly this is going to go. Wait, this is not going to be Theon's triumph in A Song of Ice and Fire? Perish the thought. Weird. <laughs> I know, so strange. I, you've been bringing this up since, since Theon's second chapter, Emmett, but I've been struck by this idea of viewing these chapters through the lens of a character who doesn't actually get the point of view in the particular chapter. And I'm equally intrigued by moments in the story when two established point of view characters are in one place together and how they would have different per, differing perspectives on the same event. And I think we were talking about this in pre-production, but George, I think, did a really good job of selecting Bran as the point of view character because he's emphasizing the mood for the protagonist, in quotation marks, side of A Song of Ice and Fire, tragedy and downfall. For Theon, this is a moment of Victorian-esque triumph, albeit one where he comes off like a total fucking jackass. But what's going on inside Theon's head when all this is going down? This is a question that's been kind of popping through my mind. I mean, Theon's machismo in his th first three chapters in A Clash of Kings is total overcompensation for the vain, shallow boy inside of a man's body. And I think we're continuing to see that onto here in Winterfell. And ain't that Theon Greyjoy in A Clash of Kings? And ain't the tragedy and foreboding the cornerstone of Bran Stark's entire arc in A Clash of Kings too? I, th I think you, you said it exactly right. We're seeing Theon not from his own head where he's victorious and this is his best moment. We're seeing him from the outside, not even from the POV of someone who's contemptuous towards him, but someone who used to trust him. And there's that great moment in the show when, uh, when Isaac Hampstead Wright says to Theon, did you hate us the whole time? And Theon just doesn't know what to say to that because the answer is at one level, yeah, of course I did. I was your prisoner. But he's actually still too attached to them and too detached from his Ironborn family to really say that. He's caught in between. As I mentioned earlier, my favorite aspect of Bran 6 is that even while the plot is changing, the character work is consistent with what's come before. Bran's sudden fall from power does not render moot the previous discussions of doing one's princely duties. Those duties are more important than ever because they've been infused with immediate life or death urgency. This is no longer just, you know, a training exercise. This is the real deal. Bran's test here starts the same way his storyline in The Clash of Kings started. When Theon leaves the room, Bran is back in the exact position he was at the opening of his first chapter in this book, staring out the window, hating his powerlessness over the world he ostensibly rules over. He wishes he was still inside Summer, because then he could run and fight and hear and smell. But then again, Summer still couldn't save the day. You could say that Summer's cage is a metaphor for Bran's cage. Summer can run and fight and hear and smell, but he's stuck inside the godswood, so what good does it do him? Bran isn't stuck inside the godswood, but he can't run, nor fight, 
nor can he hear or smell anything like Samarkand. His self is divided, split. It's the warg self versus the prince self we've been talking about in these brand chapters, and the whole point of his hero's journey is to reconcile the two. That struggle has, in part, taken the form of Bran's competing mentors, the sorceress Jojen Reed and the secular Maester Lewin, who comes in now. He tells Bran how Theon's men took the castle, killing Alebelly in the process, just as Jojen prophesied. Lewin says that he never saw this threat coming, but Bran internally confirms that Jojen, the magical mentor, did. Of course, that's not to say that Lewin is, is now, like, obsolete or anything like that. He still has an important role to play in this chapter as Bran's political mentor. Yes, and in this moment, Matt, Maester Lewin is here addressing Bran as a prince and discussing the importance of looking princely for the surrender. And it kind of reminds me of Bran in A Game of Thrones, eternally remarking that sometimes when he speaks to his brother Rob, oh, it's his brother that he's always loved. But sometimes Rob has to put on the, what he describes as the stern face of Rob the Lord. You know, once his parents leave, he has more responsibility and he has to present this image to take care of his people. And here, Bran has to do the same. But of course, Bran is still just a boy, right? And he's, he's very scared. And it, this reminds me of something else from actually Bran's very first chapter in A Game of Thrones when he's speaking with Ned and he's like, but you know, Dad, basically, how can I be, how can I be brave, right? When I'm so afraid. And Ned remarks back to him, you can only be brave when you are afraid. So this, this is one of those moments that yes, Ned is dead, but you can see him living on through the life lessons that he taught his children. And in this moment, Bran, by trying to, by putting on the face of the Lord, is truly committing a brave act. Yeah, I totally agree. He's living up to the best of Ned, what Ned taught him from his very first chapter, his very first POV chapter forward, when we, when we heard that line about, you can only be brave when you're afraid. That's the meaning of that wolf's head clasp that Bran says he likes so much in that scene. That's, that's why, why that's powerful. And he is prepared to live up to Ned's example. And unfortunately... Theon is not. Lewin tries to explain that by saying that cruel places breed cruel people. A statement that is probably too complex to fully break down here. <laughs> I think it is both true and insufficient. It is true that the old way, the, the practice of reaving on the Iron Islands, is ultimately rooted in the lack of resources on the Iron Islands. But then how do you explain the new way? The Ironborn more interested in trade, like Quellon Greyjoy or Roderick the Reader. Material explanations and cultural explanations are both necessary. And you know, it's not like Theon personally was ever actually deprived of anything. More to the point though, Theon's cruelty was not bred on the Iron Islands because he left the Iron Islands when he was nine. It comes from the combination of his two cultures. It comes from feeling like he can't, can't quite be that guy, so he has to try all the harder. Theon is trying to live up to the ideal of the old way with such desperation because he doesn't really belong there. Ned's efforts to gentle him, as Lewin put it, I don't really think they were too little too late. I think they were just successful enough to doom Theon and make sure he would never be at home in either place. Right, the combination of just a little bit too little, a little bit too much at the same time as the thing that influences Theon to become the person that he is. And one aspect of Theon that underpins his story is how he's felt alienated from every father figure he's ever encountered. Balon and Ned were both cold to him. And I find <laughs> I find Lewin's statement that Ned tried to gentle Theon a little bit off-putting. Not, not to give Theon too much sympathy in this chapter where he's just a fucking dick throughout, but we have to at least acknowledge that that statement is just should at least kind of have us tilting our heads. As Theon thinks, he lived in fear of Ned Stark and the great sword that's hung over him his entire life. 
Theon is the product of, let's call it less than a, than a, than a less than ideal nurturing system that hung over him. As we talked in Theon's third chapter about how Dagmar was the only warm fatherly figure in Theon's life. But Bran says in this chapter that Dagmar is, that old Nan is called Dagmar a monstrous war chief who could not be killed. For Ned Stark's legacy, we have kind of a Dagmar effect going on where most of the point of view characters think rather warmly and fondly of him, given that they are, of course, blood relatives or married to him. But Theon doesn't have that perspective. Theon's perspective, and it's an important one, recontextualizes Ned to where he's not the warm fatherly figure. To Theon, Ned is practically the monstrous war chief that Nan says that Dagmar Clefjall was. Now, objectively speaking, Ned Stark is still preferable to your Dagmar Clefjalls in this world, and definitely preferable to the Balin Greyjoys and then the Ramsay Boltons. But the callous, selfish young man who takes Winterfell with a bubble of resentment surrounding him is as much the product of Balin's old way ideology, and as you were saying, and Ned Stark's role as the hostage taker and holder of Theon Greyjoy. Certainly people with no good options are going to fall back on violence. We saw that in King's Landing in the last Tyrion, in the last couple of Tyrion chapters. But I don't think the same argument quite applies to Theon, nor do, nor do I think it quite applies to the young Walder Freys who come up again in this chapter. Their cruelty was not bred by their natural environment, but by their family environment. When Big Walder tells Bran that Rob has lost his kingdom, that he, Bran, is no prince but a hostage, immediately uh, abandoning any connection to them... What Big Walder is reflecting, what uh, Little Walder actually, I think, what Little Walder is reflecting there is the, the ruthless competitive ambition of the adults who raised him. The phrase loyalty is skin deep. They are instinctively eager to get on board with a bully like them. When Jojen points out that really they've all been made equal, they're all hostages, they're all equally powerless now, Little Walder responds with a slur. Because that's the hierarchy of power he believes in. The likes of Jojen and Hodor, and probably Bran due to his disability, are subhuman and beneath contempt. And of course, the old way of the Ironborn is founded on exactly that idea. So no wonder the Freys and the Greyjoys can kind of get along. They have really the kind of the same worldviews. Meanwhile, poor young Rickon just wants his family back. And that's the aching human need under all these larger structures. Theon, too, wants his family back deep down. And this is the only way he can conceive of getting the other Greyjoys to love him. Lewin takes Rickon's hand and reassures him that he is loved. That's what Dagmar tried to do for Theon, but in that case, I think it really was an attempt at gentleness that just came too little and too late. Agreed. I think it's really tough for Theon in that he didn't really have any people that truly loved him. But people who do love their surrogate sons is an interesting feature of A Clash of Kings because there's this dynamic of maesters serving as surrogate fathers to sad second sons, like Bran, like Stannis. Ding! At Dragonstone, Crescent loved Stannis and tried to be a dad to the sad boy who stood in the shadows of his older brother, Robert. And here at Winterfell, Lewin tries to be a dad to both Bran and Rickon here, sharing hard truths with them about the state of things at Winterfell. But... Lewin also kind of acts in a kind of motherly role as kind of a mom to these kids here, too, because Rickon, as you were saying, calls for his mom and Lewin offers, I don't know if this is a bad, a bad thing to say, but Lewin offers almost motherly comfort to Rickon, reminding the boy that Catelyn is far away, but Mama Lewin is here with hugs and comfort for his boys. I don't think that's a bad thing to say at all. I think that's quite deliberate. George is... is- Framing that when he says that Catelyn's not here and Lewin is having to play that role too. Catelyn herself said she had to play both son and daughter 
to Hoster. It's, it's not so much, I think, that George is saying these are the inherent roles of gender. It's more just these are the roles of gender in this society. And sometimes individuals have to live up to two of those roles at once, which is true, I think, in our society, too, with our own gender roles and how sometimes people have to flip-flop between them. It's, you know, that's, that's just part of life and part of parentage. And so the castle's inhabitants are gathered into the Great Hall to witness a political transformation. One Prince of Winterfell giving way to another. The great irony here is that while Theon utterly failed to prove himself as an ironborn leader on Pike, he knows the northern trappings of power very well. And of course he does, because he's been living here for years. So while Theon can't seem to take a step on the Iron Islands without revealing how little he belongs there, he knows exactly how to signify his conquest of Winterfell, sitting himself in the high seat of the Starks. It's a moment of such primal political power that even Rickon is able to pick up on what's happening here. Theon's sitting in Rob's chair. Bran, a little older, can pick up on the mood in the room, so he tells Rickon to hush. The people of Winterfell are gradually driven into the hall. Some are crying, some are wounded, and it's clear even before Theon makes it explicit in his next chapter that Paula was assaulted. When Septon Chael tries to help her, He's knocked to the ground. He wasn't rebelling. All he was doing was trying to help Paula. How would that hurt the Ironborn at all? All of which is to say that even before Theon opens his mouth, the notion that he and his men are indistinguishable, as he says, from Ned and his men is bullshit. And then the Ironborn bring in, quote-unquote, Reek. Even in Bran's panicked state, he takes a moment to feel disgust with the Reek. And that's kind of a nudge in the ribs from George. Like, hey, I know we're, we're you know, focusing on the Grey Joys right now, but pay attention to this guy. Uh, I, I love how, how Reek is introduced here. He says they call him Reek, one of the Ironborn says. And that really stands out on reread. <laughs> yeah, they call him Reek, but that's not his true name. He's playing a role, like Bran and Theon. Ramsay's first spoken line in the series is about his rapacious desires. Haven't fucked no one since they took me. Ramsay revels in sadistic sex play. That's what's driving him in this moment. He wants to get back to the power that allowed him to do that. Theon finds quote-unquote reek amusing. Another very bad sign about how this will go. You really should not find this guy amusing. I think it's so telling that when Theon learns that Ramsay married Lady Hornwood, he's, like, baffled and surprised. Like, what? She wasn't sexy. What other motive could there be? Well, as Ramsay himself, like, patiently explains to Theon, he didn't wed her for her teats, my lord. He wed her for her castle and her lands. As much as Ramsay is driven by his sadistic desires, he also does have cunning, and we see that displayed here as well. The fact that Theon can't even comprehend these ambitions is another bad sign for him. That's like a real lack of political intelligence on Theon's part that he can't realize why Lady Horn would be valuable beyond just, you know, a tumble in the hay. Bran also possesses political intelligence, despite his age. He quickly realizes that, hey, the Ironborn don't really have enough men to hold on for long. You got like, what, 30 guys, Theon? And that is in part why Micken defies Theon so boldly. Theon swaggers in here like he's conquered the north single-handedly, rather than temporarily taking a single castle with a few dozen guys. His opening line to the people is again very telling. You all know me. Yeah, they do. And that's the problem. They see him as a traitor, not a returning friend. They hate him far more than they hate his fellow Ironborn, precisely because they're familiar with him. The rest are just strangers. 
But that bond meant nothing to Theon, apparently, since he comes in here as a conqueror. So why should it mean anything to them? Bran tells Micken to be silent. He tries to maintain the Lord's face that Stanford was talking about earlier. But unlike Ned or Rob, he can't do it. He's a scared little kid, and so his voice squeaks. Still, that's not the true test of courage. The true test is speaking up, even in a squeaky voice, to declare that he has surrendered Winterfell in order to keep his people safe. Exactly, exactly. Bran is, Bran is still a boy, but he displays courage by surrendering Winterfell, which probably probably keeps a lot of his people safe and saves lives. As, as characters say, when the Lord play their games of thrones, it's usually the small folks that suffer. And as an African proverb, when elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. So here, Bran, he's, he's only a boy, but he's trying to make the decision. He's making the decision, actually, that saves the lives of the small folks, tries to prevent the grass from suffering. And it kind of reminds me of Edmure, I believe, in Catlet 5 that you guys did just a, maybe a couple of weeks ago when Edmure says, well, my people are here in the castle because my people, they were afraid. He's trying to value. He's actually living up to the feudal contract and valuing the, the small folks' lives. Exactly. Living up to the, to, the, to the oath, to the contract. He's displaying the substance of the Starks, whereas Theon can only access the surface, the chair, being in charge. And so he cannot win the people's loyalty. As Micken says, Theon can't hold the North that way, especially with so few men. Unfortunately, Micken dies for this defiance. Jojen's prophecies just keep coming true. And really, what a waste of resources that is to kill Winterfell's <laughs> smith. Like, that's a valuable guy. Remember how they keep Gendry alive at Harrenhal because he's so useful as a smith? And Theon will later spoil the well with Septon Chael's body. The well, you know, Theon, you're about to come under siege. You <laughs> might need a well. The Ironborn claim the North by right of conquest, but do nothing to actually set up and maintain their empire in the long term. Because the old way has made them this way. They're just bullies following their violent instincts towards short term domination. Nothing makes this more clear than when Theon declares he'll be as good a lord as Ned Stark, but he has to raise his voice to be heard over the sound of his men beating poor Hodor into silence, something Ned would never have permitted. Actions speak louder than words, and Theon only wants to be like Ned Stark to the extent that it means being in charge. Bran is the true prince of Winterfell. He absolutely is. And I'm always reminded in these moments of how Ned Stark governed himself as Lord Stark and the loyalty he and the loyalty he engendered through his governance. The type of loyalty that Ned had was earned from the Northmen is one that was both inherent inherited, because he is a Stark, and also earned too. I mean, Ned was the son of Rickard Stark, we should admit that as much, but he also gave a place at the table to the Winterfell staff. He visited small and high lords in the north and ingratiated himself with the population. Ned knew all of his men, their cares, their troubles. Don't let your men die for a stranger, he tells Rob Stark. Know your men. This is why the Mountain Clansmen marched for the Ned's girl and a dance with dragons. Had Ned only opted for the, I'm in church because of my father, he wouldn't have really gained the passion and love of his people, really. The same dynamic that is displayed multiple times in the series. Theon here does not have a Stark surname, and he couldn't play the nice guy at Winterfell or lose face to the Ironborn Reavers who took the castle for him. As a result, Theon is in a no-win situation with also no leg to stand on. He's no Stark, and he's not able to earn the loyalty of the inhabitants of Winterfell by being the guy who knows his people and knows his men the same way that Ned Stark does. And as a result, we see Theon failing even as he starts to win. 
And you know, Theon's failure to win over the people is not exactly subtly conveyed in this scene. It's very <laughs> obvious. But Theon, Theon doesn't want to see that. As in his own chapters, Theon is transparently lying to himself in an effort to reconcile his bifurcated identity. He concocts a scenario here in which Rob would just be happy to remain as the king of the Trident down in the Riverlands. When, of course, that's not true. Rob, as we're going to see in the Storm of Swords, will retake the North or die trying. But wh So why does Theon even come up with this scenario? Why does he bother? Well, because unlike his family, Theon doesn't actually think of Rob as a hated enemy. The rest of his family would be like, yeah, I hope Rob dies down there. That'll, that would be very useful to us if Rob dies against the Lannisters. But Theon doesn't want that to happen. So he's to imagine the situation in which I'm in charge up here and Rob is in charge down there. Maybe we'll still be friends. That's a complete delusion. But what else is he supposed to think about what he's doing? Even as Theon rises to power, all the warning signs about his downfall to come are readily apparent to pretty much everyone except him. On reread, you actually notice when Reek, or really Ramsay, enters the scene, he's just, he's very clever. He knows too much about the value of the Hornwood lands and the Mandalays in general. And I think that's a small hint from George that Reek is more than he, than he appears. And that hint stands out big time on, on a reread. And as you mentioned, Theon knows the trappings of power in the North, but he's either delusional or lying about his ability to, to, to hold the North. It's very funny. Oh, we're going to take Deepwood Mott. Oh, my uncle's coming with reinforcements. His uncle's not coming to Winterfell with reinforcements. <laughs> and I just think it's a small LOL moment that both of the people in this chapter who just quickly want to pledge fealty to, to Theon in this chapter, Reek and Osha, have no intention, no intention at all to actually keep that fealty. And Theon probably should have actually considered the fact that the people who were too quick to serve him may have had ulterior motives. That's a great point. Even as, as he's building his empire, every, every new addition to his team is, is not actually on his side. As you say, Theon fails the test of Reek in multiple respects. He doesn't wonder about ulterior motives. He doesn't wonder why a mere serving man has such a handle on northern politics. And he doesn't internalize the warning that there are plenty of Northmen left around here to fight and kick out the Ironborn. For Bran, this is devastating because Jojen's prophecies, again, just keep coming true. Next up would be this Reek fellow skinning off Bran and Rickon's faces. As rereaders, of course, we know that Theon is sealing his own horrible doom here, not Bran's. Now, as first-time readers, I, I, I can only speak for myself, but I, I, I definitely didn't realize that something was terribly wrong with this Reek fellow, even as I'm outlining all these reasons why. Because George keeps distracting us. He keeps our focus elsewhere. The scene doesn't linger on Reek. It immediately moves on to Osha scorning the Starks and swearing loyalty to Theon. And like Bran, we're stunned by this betrayal. I agree that it's funny how neither of Theon's new soldiers have any intention of staying loyal, just for <laughs> complete opposite reasons. Mm -hmm. There is no foundation to his rule. So even as Bran and Hodor disappear into darkness and despair at the end of this chapter, Theon can hardly be said to have won. And by the time we get back to his POV, it will all have already fallen apart. From here, Bran vanishes for the rest of the book, before emerging at the very end of A Clash of Kings for one more chapter. The prince, the heir, the king of Westeros-to-be, is waiting in the wings as the civil war reaches its furious heights both here and at King's Landing, resuming only at the end to help rebuild the world. Yeah, and the previous chapter had Catelyn realize that Arya wasn't present when Cleos Frey was in the Red Keep, and this leads Cat to wonder whether Arya's gone missing. 
Cersei too admits to Tyrion at the end of a, at the start of a Clash of Kings that no one had seen Arya after Marin Trant faced down that hero Cyril Pharrell. And after the Purple Wedding, Sansa too will disappear from King's Landing and pose incognito as Elaine Stone in the Vale. As you say, this is the final spot many of the people in Winterfell will see Bran before he disappears along with Rickon and the Dire Wolves. And though Wex will glimpse Bran and Rickon alive and departing the Godswood, the Starks, you get the sense that the Starks are disappearing into the ether of the story. And it has me thinking of kind of Arthurian legend and how George might be inspired by some of the traditional storytelling tropes that surround Arthurian legend. There's almost an Avalon-like feeling of the badly wounded Starks who will live on in the story, disappearing into the mists of Avalon in order to recover and then return to save the world in its most dire moment. I think that's great. You got to walk the domain of death and, and take that part of the hero's journey. And you, know, you can see that in so many characters. You, you know, Aragorn has to walk the literal paths of the dead, you know, in the mists and fog behind the scenes, everyone assuming he's going to die before he can return in triumph to Minas Tirith to save the day. And Bran has his, has his own version of that arc. Mm-hmm. And I think that's we'll wrap us up for our depth portion of this episode, for transitioning to foreshadowing, foreshadowing and groundwork. So the taking of Winterfell, because the castle is undermanned due to most of the fighting men being away from this castle, is something... We're going to see again in two weeks' time with Bruce Bolton taking Heron Hall when most of the men are away from the castle itself. But it's also how John Connington takes Storm's End as most of the fighting men who would normally defend Griffin's Roost are off with Red Run at Connington at Maidenpool or way up north with Stannis. It's kind of a trope that George uses, starts to use a, a few times as his story progresses from A Clash of Kings. And in this very chapter, Ramsay slash Reek tells Theon that the Stark Lords will rebel against them, especially the Mandalese. And when you fast forward to A Dance with Dragons, you have the Mandalese working with other Stark Lords, basically trying to put a Stark in power. But the irony is they're trying to rebel against the Boltons and Ramsay. Yeah, you make yeah, you both make great points. But put, putting those two together, you have like the situation where the North has to be scattered for the moment to allow Than to succeed. But then that also keeps just enough men in, around in the North that, you know, you have a kind of a loyalist force that can, can put the Starks back in power. And I think that's set up in the earlier book. Some people have said that the Mountain Clans and A Dance with Dragons kind of come out of nowhere, that George just kind of came up with them as, a, as, a, as an army you know, to be useful <laughs> so that the pro-Stark side has some people on their side. But, you know, we, we, we talk about them quite a bit in A Storm of Swords when Bran passes through their territories we're going to get into. So I think George is setting up that he wants just enough loyal men in the North to reform, as just as the Starks are going to reform from, you know, scattered to the four winds back at Winterfell, and, and the North will, will reforge on the kind of the values the Starks keep alive, and that survives the threat coming from Theon. Right, and I think, like, too, even though the North has enough men to have this kind of interesting dynamic at the end of A Dance with Dragons, we still have to remember that, was it 40,000-ish people are down with Rob Stark in the Riverlands? And what is it that Stannis says? He's got 5,000 or so men to include his own dudes that he's marching on Winterfell with. And Ramsey's got five to 6,000 dudes as well. 11,000 is a little bit of a, if, if I'm, I'm not a math guy, but I think 11,000 is George, so that's 40, okay. <laughs> right, that's true. George, was well, as Steve Abel said, there's a hashtag George can't math, which is on Tumblr apparently, yes, which indeed. is a really good thing. I think that kind of rolls us into our, our theory discussion portion of it, because this this chapter is something that we have a reference to in one of the Winds Winter sample chapters, and that's namely the fall of Winterfell and Theon's role in it in A Clash of Kings. And of course, the king brings this up. Yes, indeed. As, as, we're, as we see from Theon's release chapter from The Winds of Winter, this, is, uh, this might not be the only time that Winterfell falls in the series. In A Dance with Dragons, the Boltons and their fray allies are occupying it, but Stannis is on the march. 
Theon is now in Stannis' camp since he escaped Winterfell with Jane Poole. And so the potential emerges for a great, like, kind of uh, closed-loop aspect of Theon's arc where he's going to help take the castle for a second time, but potentially, you know, for for good this time, for the side of good this time, or at least relatively good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Better than the Greyjoys and the, and the Boltons, the for sure. The non-Bolton side, exactly. Right, the non-Bolton side. The, yeah, the, the slightly better, I mean, much better compared to the Boltons, I guess. So in the Theon Wins Winter chapter, uh, Stannis is having this conversation, and he says, I know what he, the king indicated Theon, him, uh, what he wants. That is, that Stannis is talking about Theon. Wool wants him dead. Flint, Nori, all of them want him dead. For the boys he slew, vengeance for their precious Ned. Will you oblige them? Just now, the turncloak is more used to me alive. He has knowledge we may need. So the question I have for you, gentlemen, this evening is, what is the knowledge that Stannis hopes to grab from Theon in order to take Winterfell from the Boltons and take it out from under him? I think the knowledge that Theon has is probably different than the knowledge that Stannis actually wants, right? Like Theon Hmm. can actually reveal, oh, maybe Bran and Rickon are still alive. And that's information that Stannis may or may not know. I think Stannis is probably looking, well, Theon maybe knows who's in the castle, how much forces there are. Possibly Theon could tell him about the whole Manderley Boltons fighting in the in the food hall, and maybe that gives Stannis the idea to try to contact them. But I'm not I'm not very I'm not actually sure. I like that idea that because that kinda kinda fits a Stannis' story where he often what ends up helping or hurting him ends up being something out of his control or that he didn't expect. Like, you know, in a storm of swords, he thinks I'm going to gain power through Edric's storm, but Davos gives him a different way of doing it. I, I, I think that's, I think that I like that a lot. You know, we, we see the birds in Theon's released winds of inner chapters shouting at his name. It's probably Bran and Bloodraven. So that's likely to, to come into play. But yeah, you know, Theon, you know, he, he took Winterfell with, with, with a handful of men. Stannis might not have this, the same ability just to go over the walls like that. But Theon, as as we see in that release chapter, he knows the personalities of the people on the other side. He knows how to fool them, and so maybe maybe that has some some part to play in terms of how Stannis ends up faking his death. What do you think, Jeff? So I was thinking about this, and it kind of dawned on me as we were doing this analysis on, on Brand's sixth chapter in A Clash of Kings that George might be doing another dynamic where the men have all been, all the fighting men have been scattered away from mm. Winterfell. Namely, because we know that, that Bruce Bolton has dispatched the Freys and the Manderlys from Winterfell in order to take down Stannis Baratheon at the Crofter's Village. Now, something that kind of dawns on me too about this is that that is emptying Winterfell of. People who are fiercely anti-Bolton, but also people who are more Bolton loyalists in the, in the form of the phrase. But Theon also says something interesting in that, in that I was about to say that Stannis wins a winter chapter, and that Theon wins <laughs> a winter much. chapter. Pretty much. I mean, we talk about this over and over again about how this is basically a Stannis point of view chapter. It's great. Um, he says that Ramsay is also coming too. And it kind of dawned on me that maybe this is the way that George ends up exploring the dynamic in the Winds of Winter of having a confrontation between this was yeah, way out of the blue of having John and John Snow and Ramsey come into conflict because Ramsey won't actually be in the castle of Winterfell when Stannis takes it, which will then prevent him from actually being killed by Stannis Baratheon for uh, all his numerous, numerous crimes. Ramsey goes back to the Dreadfort. John Snow comes out of the wall and from Castle Black and ends up. I, I have not figured out the Winterfell plot for Stannis and Jon yet by any stretch. And I imagine George might not. Right. Yet either. That's why we're still waiting. But, uh, but we can, we can know, we can be fairly confident that there's going to be a Jon Snow Ramsey confrontation. At least Game of Thrones season six, the Battle of the Bastards ha- had that as being a, um, 
a something that we would potentially see. And I think that George has indicated too that having this idea of, oh, there should be a dire wolves versus a dogs fight, which we need to set up here in season four when he was conversing with uh, the showrunners from, from Game of Thrones. And that is seems to be has led a lot of folks to indicate to believe that there's going to be a confrontation between Ramsey and John. So I think that's a way that we could see this happen, that Stannis takes Winterfell with just a few dudes and maybe they get over the walls or maybe they're just let in because they pose as Freys and Karstarks. These are these are theories that have been in existence in the fandom for a long time now. But I think the idea of having most of the Bolton loyalist men out of Winterfell itself would provide a standpoint from which we could see a fulfilling endpoint, which does utilize the unspecific knowledge of taking a castle when it's undermanned and underdefended. I like that a lot. You know, part of it I always thought like you know, you know, we've we've had this emphasis on the Battle of Ice, which of course is George's term for it, and it's Stannis versus Hostine Frey at the Crofters' village and. You know, that battle itself is not super important, right? Because it's like, you know, the only thing at stake there is Hostine Frey and his little army. And I wonder if George is emphasizing that because the fall of Winterfell itself won't actually be a battle. Like, it's going to be, there's not going to be that many men and they're going to take it quickly or by surprise. So, like, the big set piece is the Battle of Ice. And then Winterfell itself is is going to to fall in a more, you know, like with guile or subterfuge, like the way Storm's End is going to fall to John Connington. And yeah, I've always had conflicts about what what happens with Ramsay because I'm like, well, I don't think Stannis Stannis can't really outright lose, unlike in the show, because he still has to burn Shireen, and Shireen's not with him on the march, unlike the show. But also, you know, I definitely see the appeal of a John Ramsay showdown because they're both bastards and they're such opposites, and it was set up with the pink letter, so that you know, some some combination therein, you know, I could see like um. People are talking in the chat about how the the appeal of of Ramsey's dogs being sent on him, set on him, like they were in the show, and Theon brings that up in the books. I maybe you know maybe John as ghost like leads the wolf, leads the dog pack against Ramsey or, or some such. I could definitely see that going down. But yeah, I think, and I also think that that fits Stannis's character that he would technically do the thing, you know, technically take Winterfell, <laughs> but the real triumph of defeating the Boltons doesn't actually belong to him, and that leads into something we talked about before that ultimately the North is probably going to side with John over Stannis and maybe if John is responsible for for the actual downfall of the Boltons maybe that's 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 part of why uh in, in terms of Theon's role in this you know it's as we we're saying Bran, Bran and Blood Raven seem to be part of this plot Bran knows a lot about Winterfell so maybe maybe Bran helps Stannis out through Theon and maybe maybe they help him temporarily take the castle I could see that being the end point of the plot yeah, you can go back and listen to episode 10, where we actually talked about Bran's role in potentially taking Winterfell for, uh, for Stannis, which is uh, Bran's second chapter where he falls from the uh, from the tower. And we have Bran talking about the tunnels that are running through Winterfell, which might be a, right. a, a causeway by which Stannis and his people could get into the, uh, the castle itself. And... I think that about wraps up for this analysis on A Clash of Kings Brand 6. As always, thank you so much for everyone for listening. Thank you always to everyone who is watching us as well. And before I usually go into my normal spiel about please rate and review us and have a podcast and all this stuff, we want to say thank you to Stanford for joining us this evening. And we wanted to ask you, sir, where we can find your work and your social media footprint, so to speak. You know, thank you for having me. I, I really have a Twitter. It's just my first name and last name at, at Twitter. So at Stanford Frazier. I've, I've only done one Reddit analysis and I think it was well argued, but I actually probably don't even believe the argument I made at this point. So. Isn't, isn't I get that. <laughs> I got so many arguments. I'm like, that was smart. It was bullshit, but it was smart. Yeah. I know what you <laughs> Exactly. But, you know, follow me on Twitter for Ice and Fire takes as well as movie takes and bad basketball takes. 
Uh, yes, you're an excellent follow on Twitter, and I really enjoy our, our interactions there as well. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email over at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin or at, on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle. Septon Marybelt, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Ghoul and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon, Miracle Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks in Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wilder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lady Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wilder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, and our newest High Lady and High Lord, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, and Cyril of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune. So thank you so much as always to our High Lords and Ladies, and a special welcome to Lady of Rainy Afternoons and Sir Will. Thank you folks very much. I figure that you would like the uh, the Will guy the best. Absolutely. His, his title for sure. As, as, a, uh, as an Oberlin graduate, you can have I him. know all about the anarcho-syndicalist communes. <laughs> He's yours. He's all ah, yours. I'll, I'll take, take Lady him. of the Rainy I'll take him. So, we'll be off next week, so join us in two weeks' time for A Clash of Kings RA9, in which she helps Bruce Bolton take Heron Hall. Yay? Yay. <laughs> Yay. And Jack and Hagar takes off, but not before changing his face. And we'll be joined for this episode by another new guest, Wolfman Zack, who I believe is, be- is bringing his bong from not saying. Good, good, exactly. We're going to have communes and weed, everything Jeff loves. <laughs> but no, we're, we're so pleased to have on Wolfman Zack, our very own Hand of the King. He's one of our favorite people. I've been, been uh, uh, online friends with him so long since I started doing online stuff with Aswap. And uh, it's, yeah, we've been looking forever to have a good chapter to have him on. So in a couple weeks' time, we'll do uh, Arya 9 with him. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to those of you who watched us. And we'll see you guys in two weeks' time.